the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, I'd like you to meet Warrant Officer Ken Robinson, OAM. Now, Ken enlisted into the Royal Australian Air Force in 1995 from Western Australia as a personnel capability specialist. Warrant officers have a very important role in the Air Force as they are a very good catalyst and voice for communication across all ranks and officers. Ken's career has exemplified that role. During his career in the Air Force, Ken has had many diverse roles. He's been an administrator, a weapons instructor, a military skills instructor, a personnel capabilities specialist instructor, and also performed these roles in fighter squadrons, in technical training establishments, in combat support group, in surveillance group, and on various bases at a senior level. Ken was deployed on Operation Slipper at the multinational base Taran Cot. Ken was awarded an Air Force Silver Level Commendation. He also was a student on the Australian Army Regimental Sergeant Majors course in 2016 and subsequently deployed to the Middle East region in 2017 for 12 months as the Command Warrant Officer of Joint Task Force 633. Ken was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia in recognition of his efforts and also on this deployment. In 2019, he deployed to Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada in the United States as the Australian Task Group Warrant Officer for Exercise Red Flag. In September of 2019, he was appointed Air Command Warrant Officer with responsibility to Air Commander Australia as the Command Senior Enlisted Leader and Advisor. In 2022, Warrant Officer Robertson will take up the appointment of Warrant Officer Joint Operations with responsibility to Commander Joint Operations as the Joint Operations Command Senior Enlisted. Ken enjoys West Coast Eagles, basketball and spending time with his family. Well, today it's uh, another great pleasure to interview Warrant Officer Ken Robertson. Ken, how are you today? Yeah, Gareth, how are you, mate? Look, I'm very well. Now, you occupy the rank of Warrant Officer. As as I understand, uh, the rank of Warrant Officer, or the, the term Warrant Officer, actually started in medieval England, and it was first used in the 13th century in the Navy, believe it or not, but now it's in the Air Force. What actually is a Warrant Officer? Okay, so um, oh, first and foremost, thanks for having me here today, oh, Gareth. Pleasure. It's an absolute uh, pleasure to be here. Look, the uh, the rank of uh, Warrant in the Royal Australian Air Force is the most senior enlisted leader uh, in the uh, obviously in the enlisted ranks, and uh, uh, what the rank does is uh, is a conduit between uh, uh, the junior and the, uh, and the senior enlisted ranks uh, to command, especially, mm-hmm. and uh, is the practical application of command intent. 
uh, at a unit. And so uh, that, that's about as simple as I, as I, <laughs> as I put it uh, in regards to time. But uh, essentially, it is the voice of the, uh, of the workforce and, uh, and advocates on behalf of the workforce to the, uh, to the commander. So it, it's a, a pretty important role between one level and another level within the, in, within the RAF. Now, absolutely. Uh, look, the, and, and to be quite clear, the, 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 the warrant officer holds no command but what it does hold is a significant degree of influence with command. Right. And so uh, the ability to be able to uh, uh, give commanders at all levels uh, a, uh, a snapshot of, uh, of, the, uh, of the workforce uh, tempo, mm. uh, morale, uh, discipline, um, uh, it, it breaks down barriers in relation to ensuring that uh, a commander at any level uh, has the ability to be able to have a, a snapshot of how the workforce is uh, going at, at any particular point. And your relationship with the commander, how does that work and what are the difficulties, if any? Uh, absolutely pivotal. Um, my current uh, appointment as the Air Command Warrant Officer, um, I have a very strong relationship with Air Commander Australia. Uh, he is uh, uh, one of the most uh, impressive senior officers I've, I've uh, met in my time. Uh, and... It's a two-way street in that um, I understand it. It's an absolute privilege to be able to walk into his office and, hmm. and give him a, uh, a bottom line up front in regards to <laughs> a workforce uh, tempo and, and discipline and welfare and advocacy. Uh, but he also uh, understands that um, and makes time for me in that regard too. And noting that he is the Air Commander of Australia, he's a very busy man, and uh, I very much appreciate his ability to be able to to down tools most of the time and say, right, if uh, if Robbo's coming in to, to chat to me about something, it's it's something significant. Being not being in the Air Force, can you actually tell me the name of this person that you're speaking so highly of? Uh, absolutely, Air Vice Marshal Joe Viniavasi. Okay, all right. So are there times when perhaps in your role and his role you have to go in and deliver a, a message that he may not like, in which case, how does he deal with it? Yeah, certainly. Um, and I think over the last two years, I've had plenty of opportunities to do that. Uh, <laughs> coming through uh, Operation uh, Bushfire Assist when we first got together as a uh, as a command team, uh, and then on to obviously the global pandemic and yeah. uh, and defences uh, and Air Force in particular's reaction to that to maintain preparedness uh, and operational capability. There's been numerous discussions, uh, especially from a workforce perspective. Sure. Uh, the Australian Defence Force and Air Force. Uh, um, members uh, haven't been um, exempt from uh, lockdown and haven't <laughs> been exempt from uh, any other restrictions which uh, has been placed on the community. And so as a cross-section of society, uh, we have to uh, uh, be cognizant of that. Yeah, sure. And so in maintaining uh, our preparedness to be able to uh, deliver uh, air capability, um, we need to also be mindful of that the pressures that have been put on our workforce on top of um, uh, on top of normal uh, preparedness uh, activities mm. uh, lockdown uh, the inability of uh, some of our personnel not to be able to get home because they're in different states mm. uh, and, uh, and uh, similar type issues so uh, yep there's been a number of convers hard conversations uh, but uh, the mark of the man um, in every conversation uh, he takes on board uh, um, all the points I, I give to him. Oh. But, but, but more importantly, Gareth, is that when I leave his office, I'm selling his message. 
Yeah. And that's, well. the, and that's the pivotal part of that uh, relationship in that I can go in there and, and have a, a discussion with the air commander. Uh, I may, we may not agree, uh, essentially, uh, but when I leave his office, I'm selling that mm. message like it's my own. I want to stay with the role of the warrant officer in a moment, but let me just take a sidetrack. Uh, you've mentioned COVID. Uh, 2021 has been the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force and that whole period, that whole year and part of 2020, we've been COVID under the pressure. So how would your role and the role of personnel within the RAF have changed or needed to be changed at a base, for argument's sake, and air preparedness maintained with COVID. How have you dealt with that? Well, how much time do we have? We uh, have as much time <laughs> as you like. Yeah, no, look, um, certainly um, maintaining preparedness during a global pandemic has been a challenge and continues to be so. Uh, the the abilities of uh, have been constrained. Our abilities have been constrained in regards to uh, not only um, our personnel being in uh, various stages of lockdown, depending on which state they're in, but also as an Air Force, uh, we move from state to state and we move internationally. And obviously the border restrictions have had a significant impact uh, on our Air Force personnel. I think um, we have over uh, and uh, uh, I, um, when I quote this number, it could be uh, a little bit more uh, than um, than the current day, but over 200 years cumulatively of quarantine for our air crew personnel. Unbelievable. Uh, which has uh, been a significant impact. And you can imagine the, the mental health uh, mm. issues and concerns uh, in that regard also. But just the ability to be able to have all hands on deck yeah. has been quite restrictive. Uh, yes, working from home has its benefits uh, for some. Can't fly an aeroplane from home. <laughs> absolutely. And the practical application of air power um, uh, comes down to having people there to support the frame getting on and off the ground as well as the people yeah. who uh, and the air crew who fly them. So, yeah, it's been some significant, uh, uh, significant uh, barriers, uh, but uh, we're getting out of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we look, as, as we go through 2022 yet to come and 23 and 24 and so on, COVID will become part of our history. So whenever you are listening to what Ken is saying, just remember, like everyone else in Australia, everyone, including the RAAF, has had to live through the restrictions of COVID. But I want to talk about Ken. You enlisted in 1995. Why? Why? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really good question. I, I, I joined the Air Force Cadets in, uh, in 1989 and... I just had a, a, an absolute love for the, that organisation and, and air power in particular, um, airplanes more, <laughs> more so than anything. And uh, I went through, uh, I tried to join uh, in 1990 and, uh, as an aircraft technician and uh, I was unsuccessful, but that only really fuelled my desire to continue. And, and the best piece of advice I got was to, to finish my schooling uh, and then reapply, which I did. Uh, at the time, I tried to rejoin again as an aircraft technician, and I didn't have any uh, positions. But I was that desperate to to get into the organisation. They they said, "Oh, would, what would you like to do?" Uh, you know, I said, "Well, I'd like to be an aircraft technician." They said, "Well, we can't do that at the moment, but uh, we have cooks and clerks." And I went, "Well, I don't even reckon Air Force could teach me how to cook." Uh, so, uh, and uh, and I think my parents would agree with that. But uh, I joined as a clerk and. Uh, Whilst I'd, uh, um, I didn't really particularly want to join as a clerk, uh, I actually really, 
I just wanted to get into the organisation. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, you're in. 1995, yep. you're in. You're now part of the Royal Australian Air Force. So mm. what were the next couple of years like? What kinds of things were you asked to do and how did you handle them? Well, in 95, Air Force was, uh, like most of the ADF, was a, a training organi- a largely training-based organisation. There wasn't too many uh, operational activities happening across uh, across the world, which uh, the Air Force was, was involved in. If they were, they were rather quite niche activities. Yeah. And so... For a vast majority of my time uh, at my first posting at uh, Raf Williams at Laverton, it was more so just betting down uh, uh, my technical mastery in, in my in my mustering, uh, and coming up through uh, those a couple of years there, it was it was actually not I'll have a lot going on to be perfectly honest. I didn't do too many uh, uh, trips around the place. Uh, I got up to Amberley a couple of times, which was awesome. Uh, managed to do an attachment. Uh, both to Amberley and then down to Tasmania. So whilst uh, there wasn't much going on, my chain of command there, I'm, I'm still thankful to this very day that they got me a couple of opportunities to get out and about and see yeah, the organisation. That's, that's great. But, uh, yeah, nearer to the end of the 90s, that's when things started to, to ramp up operationally and then and then all of a sudden uh, I found myself, uh, um, found myself over at Point Cook doing uh, weapon instruction uh, there, which, I, which was... Uh, a real eye-opener, and then from there, uh, my warrant officer said, look, I think you've got an eye for instruction, so uh, why don't you get into uh, instructing, and, and we went from there. What is weapons instruction? What do you do? Okay, so I was, uh, I was still a clerk by mustering, but I, I managed to uh, um, uh, I managed to get uh, over to RAF Base Point Cook at the, uh, the armory there, and because I wanted to become a recruit instructor, yeah. and my chain of command, uh, I thought, well, is a really good opportunity for you to uh, um, bed down some uh, some instructional skills uh, whilst uh, delivering uh, instruction on the F-88 Ostia rifle. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's basically what I did for a complete 12 months there with the uh, with the ground defence staff there, and it was a, a really wonderful opportunity. So to get. weapons becomes part of your expertise or your knowledge. Instructional, yeah, instructional. absolutely. So yeah, and so with the F-88 being the, the standard weapon. Uh, for uh, uh, the ADF, um, um, my role at the time was to support uh, the uh, airfield defence guards and the ground defence staff in the uh, pr- practical application of instruction there. And yeah. before we enter into potential war zones, did mm. your career, that part of your career, take you overseas, or was it based mainly in Australia? No, I was still only in Australia at this stage. Uh, absolutely. So uh, Timor was starting to ramp up around, uh, you know, '99. Yep. Uh, I looked on enviously. Uh, at RAF Point Cook while this was going on, but certainly we were uh, preparing Air Force personnel who were um, who were deploying over to Timor uh, sure. uh, at short notice also. Here. It was a pretty hectic time. You do get, though, deployments, three of them, in fact, to the Middle East. Uh, I believe the first one was, was as a warrant officer with C-130 detachment. Is that yeah, correct? No, Tell absolutely. us about that. What a privilege that was. Um, so, my, yeah, my first... I've been trying to get deployed for a number of years... And uh, uh, ironically, my first deployment was as a warrant officer, so it was it was it was challenging in that respect. But um, I deployed to a place called Al Udeed Air Base in Qatar, which at the time uh, housed our C-130J detachment, mm-hmm. and uh, I was the warrant officer disciplinary for that detachment. And uh, I can count on one hand how many disciplinary issues we had <laughs> for that rotation. They were absolutely a great bunch of people, uh, very professional. I had the opportunity to. Uh, uh, get around theatre um, in the back of a C-130J a couple of times, so that was really uh, a wonderful opportunity. 
and uh, yeah, that was um, that was only uh, a short tour. It was five months. Uh, but uh, yeah, packed a lot into that five months. Also. How did you find the relationship between RWF personnel and citizens where you were? Um, no, we have a really have a really uh, good relationship uh, with the Qataris, and uh, at the time uh, there was um, obviously uh, there's always um, uh, some massaging of uh, diplomatic relations, uh, whatever country that you're hosted by. But sure. yeah, they were really accommodating for us. I mean, we ended up moving the C-130 uh, detachment to our minhead in the UAE. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that time, uh, we had no, no problems with the, uh, with the Qataris at the, in my, at, at the tactical level anyway. Uh, obviously, I'm not speaking at the more uh, strategic, but uh, yeah, across theatre, um, the Gulf states in particular, uh, UAE and Qatar, which I mainly had uh, interaction with, uh, they were wonderful hosts. Yeah. Mm. Uh, back to Australia after that, five months? Yeah, so I uh, came back to uh, RAF base uh, Wagga and uh, I was the base warrant officer disciplinary there for the remainder of uh, uh, 2010. Yeah, Let, before we go to the next one, and Taron Cotton, that's a particularly significant one, that mm. what role of warrant officer. Mm. How does the RWF, from all of the people I've spoken to, I get the sense that there's a great com- camaraderie mm. among all members of the RWF at whatever rank mm. And you as a warrant officer, as you started to say at the beginning of the interview, those below you and those above you, the relationship is good. Is there any sort of training for that preparedness of camaraderie or is it just happened because you're in a uniform? I think it's culture uh, and being part of a... um being part of an organisation or or being part of a, uh, a mission or or a goal which is higher than our uh, than our own individual uh, individual needs or goals. Um, I think military service in itself uh, really um, uh, really fosters morale and fosters a sense of well we're all in it together. Yep. yep. And um, obviously uh, from a, a teamwork perspective and and just getting the job done. I think Rafi's. Uh, are uh, quite well, uh, well renowned worldwide now, and 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 obviously with our other uh, sister services, in just um, you know, ranks important, but not as important as getting yeah. the job done. I've, I've noticed again from the various people I've spoken to that the relationship between Australian RAFIs mm. and United States RAFIs yeah. or USAF is, is a very very good one. Is that yeah. what do you think that's based oh, on? No, absolutely. I think it's because we've been on operations <clears throat> alongside each other for a number of years now. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the UK is the same. Uh, our, our history and our, all our customs traditions come from the RAF, so we have a very close bond with both the US and and uh, and and the UK. I mean, nearly every major international exercise that the Air Force takes part in has US uh, alongside us, and so it's just just a natural byproduct that we've uh, we've grown quite strong in our relationship. Very important part of uh, Australian military history is Operation Slipper, mm. and you get to be base warrant officer at Tarrant Cot. How did that come about, and what was it like? Yeah, so the multinational base command. Uh, headquarters at Tarrant was operated by Air Force and why it was is because um, there was a massive big runway uh, at Tarrant uh, which needed to be managed and uh, and uh, the garrison or the base of Tarrant essentially uh, while some of my army colleagues won't like to hear this uh, <laughs> that it was like a, a massive uh, air base yeah that we're supporting not only did we support uh, operations on the ground but we supported uh, air coming in uh, into that base and so uh, the, the base command there was Air Force there was a commanding officer who answered to the uh, 
who answered to the commander in uh, Uruzgan uh, there, uh, who was uh, a colonel by rank. But it was a uh, 05 wing commander, and myself were the uh, the CO and the and the and the and the base warrant officer. So yep. we were responsible basically for the provision of uh, or the maintenance of that air that airfield, uh, as well as support to uh, uh, army operations. And what was the operation itself like, apart from what you specifically do? Yeah, uh, it was really eye, uh, eyes wide open for the whole uh, eight months that I was there, six, seven, eight months. I was there. Oh, I mean, if I recall correctly, we got extended by a short period of time, and there was discussion at the time because it was in 2013. We're getting to the end of 2013, where we were retrograding out of there. Yep. So there was, going, you know, going to be a decision made as to whether they were going to extend us or bring a new crew in. They eventually brought a new crew in, which I thought was a really good decision. Uh, <laughs> by that stage, we were all pretty tired. Sure. Seven months in a in an operational zone in the middle of the Tarrant Bowl was uh, rather significant. Um, wh- what was it like? Um, uh, Afghanistan is, is a hard uh, a hard place. Uh, the people that we met um, and the and the uh, and the uh, ANA and the and the other services that we worked alongside were were awesome to be with. Uh, I mean, it's sad to see the country now. Uh, the state that it's gone back to, but um, certainly, and, and what my takeover, uh, sorry, my take of it, of our time there, is that for a snapshot in time, we provided uh, the Afghani people a, a safe haven yep. and, a, and a yep. better and a better life, and and that's how I'm, I, I I come to peace with it. Yeah, Ken, I always used to think I was tall until I met you. Mm. Uh, no offence, I mean that as a compliment. I mean, everyone would see Ken coming wherever you were. Surely, that is that height an advantage or a disadvantage? Uh, I suppose it's a blessing and a curse at times because certainly in my role, uh, my previous role as a warrant officer disciplinary, it, it came as an advantage. Uh, but as you evolve uh, in the rank of warrant officer, and especially in the current position I'm in at the moment, um, actually it can be a curse in that um, I certainly don't want people to be and workforce to be intimidated by yeah. my mere presence, and so I'll try and change that with my personality and uh, and and try and make pe- put people at peace pretty straight away. But yeah, when you do walk into a room and uh, at times, especially with junior ranks or junior officers, it, I can imagine it'd be rather yeah. uh, daunting. But um, yeah. L- listening to what Ken is saying, please don't get the impression he's intimidating. He has a, <laughs> he has a very warm smile. <laughs> So he delivers the message with a, with a smile. Right, Taryn Cott, when you come back to Australia, did you come back straight to Australia? Was that what happened? Yeah, so we uh, we, we got out of there. I think it was uh, late August, early September. I can't recall the dates off the top of my head. But uh, we came back through our Minhead, uh, which is our staging base in the Middle East. And then, yeah, straight back to... Uh, Straight back to uh, Australia. So, uh, yeah, the, um, I was fortunate enough. I, I worked uh, um, at that stage. I was at uh, number one recruit training unit. And so I kind of was able to focus all my energy back into my job pretty mm. quickly. What year was that? Uh, that was 2013. Right, 2013. Mm. Um, now, there's another one, a Joint Task Force 633. That's a third deployment to the Middle East. What was that all about? Yeah, that was a 12-month deployment uh, to uh, the headquarters element in uh, Al Minhad. Uh, I worked uh, for now Lieutenant General JJ Fruin, mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, heading up the COVID vaccine rollout. Um, so the importance of that position is that um, you are the senior enlisted leader for all Australian forces in the Middle East. All forces? Absolutely. So all Australian forces come under uh, commander of 633. Uh, so imagine a task group headquarters or a task force headquarters at our Minhad 
and then there's all uh, subordinate task groups that would uh, uh, answer to uh, uh, the headquarters 633. So that was an absolute privilege. Um, for the 12 months, uh, uh, the ADC to the boss when we left there had dimension for the 373 days that we were there, we'd been on the road travelling for 188 of them. Uh, so wow. it was pretty significant. We weren't at our Minhad for any longer than a few days at a time and then we were on the road again and uh, the, uh, the benefit of... Uh, of working with a, a general who was a, a hands-on leader, yeah, and uh, and uh, and de definitely a battlefield commander. Australians uh, have that that record, though. Uh, Even going way back to Monash, we have that. Absolutely, I've been very fortunate to work some some very uh, professional senior officers yeah. in, in my time, and uh, yeah, I rate General Fruin up there alongside. Uh, uh, Air Vice Marshal. Well, he's certainly doing. He has done a marvellous job with the COVID control. Um, Ken, uh, you've had three. You had three deployments in the Middle East. From the first one to the third one, did you notice any change in in attitude among the residents or, or feelings? Um, yeah. Look, the first, the, the beauty of the, I suppose the um, uh, the, the pros of uh, going over three times is that every time I went over in a different capacity. So the first time. I was there, I got to see a lot of the tactical uh, operations. Mm -hmm. The second of all was more a base-wide, uh, I had a more operation, a larger operational look about what was going on there at uh, operations in Tarancot and Uruzgan province in particular. Yep. And then the last uh, deployment was more the strategic operational perspective, like looking across you know, a wider whole of government efforts and what Australia was doing in the Middle East. And so that last deployment in particular Certainly the relation, you know, 50% of uh, my role over there alongside the uh, commander was relationship maintenance mm. with uh, host nations mm. as uh, well as the, the nations that we were, uh, uh, you know, operationally uh, operating out of. And, and so obviously there comes uh, some sensitivities in regards to dealing with host nations there. So I was very, did I see a change? Um, not in particular. I think Australians are, are quite uh, accommodating. And I think by that stage, we've been in the Middle East for quite some time. We'd learnt the nuances and learnt from our mistakes in regards to uh, how we, uh, um, how we uh, uh, maintain those relationships. I, I used the name Monash a moment ago. Monash uh, qualified the Australian as a larrikin, mm. but who could, be, who could accept discipline. Mm. To what degree is larrikinism part, do you think, of the whole culture of the RAAF? Uh, I... I I'll probably stay away from larrikinism. I'd probably... You use your word. Yeah, banter. I think good banter. And uh, I think Australians are known for uh, not taking ourselves too seriously. And uh, Air Force uh, personnel in particular. Uh, I don't think uh, um, there's a... I don't think there's a, a place I've worked with in Defence or in Air Force in particular where if you can't uh, have a joke or take a joke, uh, um, and all within reason, obviously, um, but... Um, I think we don't take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. And so the ability to be able to have banter across all the ranks and uh, not take ourselves too seriously is, is something which I think is quite envious. Uh, with other people quite find, uh, you know, don't take yourselves too seriously. You know, yeah, have a bit I, of a I've noticed within the Air Force, and I don't, don't think it exists in the same way in the Navy and the Army, mm. that there are a lot of nicknames. Like, for example, the person who's in charge of this venture mm. is Ringo. Yeah. Now, I know Ringo is the Beatle and he looks nothing like the Beatle. <laughs> but is that is that part of yeah. the whole no, ethos? No, absolutely. And I think also is that uh, our culture uh, comes down to uh, the ability to be able to, well, one, like I said before, not take ourselves too seriously. But um, 
absolutely knowing that the, the ability of being able to practically apply air power mm. means that mm. we need to be all on the same page. And, uh, and I think the nicknames also uh, reduces the... Uh, the stigma in regards to the chains of command and, yeah. and, and how we get things done. We just we just manage, we just get in there and do it. I mean, the recent uh, evacuation out of uh, Kabul had a fairly significant uh, air force contribution to that, and uh, and the and the plaudits that uh, and rightfully so that uh, the elements uh, air force elements who went in there and did that. Mm. They just, there's no fuss. Let's just get in there, do the job. Gallipoli wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been a navy. Uh, and you've just mentioned Kabul and the exit from Kabul and the yeah. the role of the Air Force. Mm. To what, How much do you see the RAAF's role is in getting combat into and extracting combat in 21st century? Uh, absolutely pivotal. And uh, I think that means, um, and you know, going back to COVID, just the ability to be able to train that, the raise, train and sustain that yep. ability, it's, it's, it's pivotal. I mean, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mentioned the Kabul uh, piece before, but um, that couldn't have been done without Air Force assets, both uh, air mobility uh, and uh, combat support, uh, getting in there, getting the job done, and then getting out yeah. safely. So, yeah, I, I, I think um, um, I think moving forward, uh, operations like that uh, uh, may become the norm. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. Sure. But the ability to be able to uh, uh, train. Uh, uh, and uh, and maintain our preparedness from that perspective is also pivotal. Yeah. Now, don't be embarrassed about answering this question. You have, and it's a it's a great honour. Mm. You have an OAM, mm. and that really does bespeak how important someone thinks mm. you and what you've done is. How did it come about, and what was it for? Uh, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Gareth. It was quite humbling. Um, it uh, General Fruin. Um, nominated me for uh, for that after our time in the Middle East together. I mean, 12 months is a long time working together as a, in, an operational, uh, in an operational capacity on deployment. And uh, um, we, we just had this wonderful uh, relationship, command team relationship, where uh, he gave me the remit to be able to uh, not only get after my job, but uh, more importantly, I gained his trust and I think the loyalty uh, that I showed um, and be able to speak on his behalf. We managed to get a lot of things done. I mean, uh, Mosul was at its height uh, there in mm. 2017. Uh, there was a there was a uh, a lot of issues uh, and concerns in regards to um, our, how long our presence was going to be left in the Middle East. And so, um, yeah, we just we had a really tight uh, relationship, and uh, I was fortunate enough that, um, that he saw that uh, my work there was worthy of. Uh, of the nomination for that uh, honour, and it's, yeah, absolutely, is a, a distinct privilege. No, thank you for that. Let's go to 2017, and Fruin keeps on coming up in your career. <laughs> Are you related? Or not? Um, you have you were involved with him with the 75th anniversary of El Alamein. What, yeah, absolutely. What, and what, so, yeah, that's uh, we we were over there at a pivotal time, really, in history. In that, uh, I mean, anniversary of uh, significant battles. Uh, where Australians took part in the Middle East. And so um, the boss and I, uh, at the time, uh, we were representing um, uh, Chief of Defence Force, who, uh, who uh, and obviously uh, General Fruin was the senior ADF officer in the, in the Middle East at the time. So as his uh, command warrior officer, I was, uh, of course I was going to uh, travel with him uh, today. It was just a, a side benefit. So, yeah, we were um, 
He was a Lieutenant General at that stage. No, he was Major General. Major General, yeah, right. So Major General at the time and uh, we ended up uh, being able to uh, travel to uh, um, where the Battle of El Alamein uh, took place as, as well as uh, 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 Shiva also. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely uh, got some um, great memories from that from those times. Did you have a sense of the history of it when you no, were there? You couldn't help but, Gareth. It was just amazing. Uh, I mean... I've got I've still got on video uh, the uh, reenactment of the uh, 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 the uh, Beersheba, yeah, Beersheba, yeah and, the, and the storming of the town by the uh, um, body strain army there. So it was just yeah, absolutely just spine tingling and, and and you don't really have a full appreciation of it until you look back on it and you yeah. just go, wow, we were there. And, yeah, we uh, walked <laughs> the same ground as uh, uh, as Australian uh, Australian soldiers did before us. Two years after that, uh, you get, were involved in Operation Red Flag, was it called? Yeah, no. That's yeah. in the States? Absolutely. So at that time, I was a group warrant officer at Surveillance Response Group at RAF Base Williamtown, and an opportunity came up to um, to head over with a uh, group captain, uh, Hinton Taylor, who was the uh, task group commander, mm-hmm. uh, to be his senior enlisted leader at Red Flag. So at uh, that Nellis Air Force Base mm-hmm. in, uh, in, Nevada. in Nevada. Yep. And, uh, yeah, we had um, a number of assets uh, head over there and about 200-odd uh, Australian personnel. So, yeah, that was, from an international engagement perspective, uh, just a wonderful opportunity. And it uh, goes, goes back to your uh, previous point about our relationship with the USAF. Uh, that's one of our major exercises where we develop those, uh, not only our uh, uh, not only our, uh, our abilities to be able to fight alongside each other, but their their relationships. Yeah. The thing I don't understand, and maybe you could explain it for me, I mean, here you are, you're part of the RAF in Australia, Mm. and there they are, they're part of the USAF in in America, Mm. and you don't dialogue every day between each other, but when you have an operation like Operation Red Flag, what is the process of melling the two different forces together? So... You accept him and he accepts you, etc. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's, you know, planning conferences beforehand. And so by the actual time the exercise kicks off, there's been a whole lot of rigour behind the scenes in regards to planning. Yep. And then uh, when you get there, uh, the actual, uh, before the actual exercise kicks off, there's a whole bunch of activities which occur in order to get to know who you're, uh, who you're working with and who you're fighting alongside. And more importantly, there's a whole bunch of social activities too, which oh, that's uh, good. <laughs> which actually create those uh, uh, bonds, uh, yeah, bonds and relationships. So when you're actually uh, fighting alongside each other and exercising alongside each other, uh, there's there's an actual bond which is created. And I, I mean, I'm still in contact with a couple of uh, of my colleagues uh, in the US uh, who was uh, who are on the same exercise. Now I don't yeah. know whether this ever occurred to you, but in the United States of America, if you mm-hmm. come from the deep south, you have a very distinct accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and if you're a fighter pilot in the United States Air Force with an Australian, co- I mean, is that a problem? Or no, no, not not at all. Uh, in actual fact, uh, you know, there's just I'll go back to my previous point in reference banter. That's just a good, healthy banter between the two services, and and obviously there's a uh, there's a an edge of uh, competition uh, between the air crews uh, and and uh, support crews for that matter. But they all know it's all uh, it's all heading towards one goal, yeah. right? And that's to work. Uh, uh, seamlessly alongside each other. If the Air Commodore came up to you one day and said, look, mm. Ken, mm. Uh, you're going to have to make a choice. It's a year appointment. I want you to either be attached to an RAF <laughs> division or a United States Air Force division. Oh, you can only choose one, mate. You've got a year. What oh. are you going to choose and why? 
Jeez. Can I ask for six months each? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> good answer. Yeah, good answer. Yeah, I think I probably, well, you don't get unless you ask, right? So I think I'd ask for six months each. Look, uh, I've enjoyed my uh, service in, in LED in Qatar in 2009. I worked alongside the uh, the British there and I was uh, still good friends on uh, social media with a uh, RAF regiment warrant officer who was there. So, I mean, I've enjoyed working alongside both the US and UK. So would you say, apart from the accent, mm. that RAF, USAF and RAAF really as as a, as a family yeah. are more together than anything else? Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, it came as a, a, a personal opinion only, uh, it came as a surprise, I think, in the Australian public in regards to the AUKUS announcement, recent AUKUS announcement. Within Defence and Air Force in particular, our relationship with, with, us, with the UK and the US is already... It's already been solidified over decades yeah. of, of working and fighting alongside each other. So this is just simply a, 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 a reconfirmation of a, of a relationship which already exists. So, I mean, it was interesting uh, um, having a bit of banter with my US colleagues where it's like, well, it's formal now. We can, uh, you know, it's all, in, uh, it's all in stone. But it, ha- it has been for a number of decades. Sure, yeah. sure. Let's just go back where we started to the mm. rank of warrant officer or the role of warrant officer. You su- you have suggested throughout this chat you've moved up and up and up, so obviously there are different levels of in- within the warrant officer thing. Can you tell us what they are and what's, yeah. what's the final step? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so Air Force has come on a journey in recent years uh, to professionalise the uh, structure, the warrant officer uh, rank structure in itself. And so within the rank of warrant officers, there are different tiers. And so... Um, Tier, a, a Tier A warrant officer is a squadron or a unit warrant officer working at the tactical level. A Tier B uh, wing or base warrant officer then works at the alongside uh, an OC or a base commander or a senior ADF officer, which is a different, uh, which is another step. A Tier Charlie warrant officer is, a, is generally a command warrant officer, and so works alongside uh, a, uh, either an air commodore or an air vice marshal. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and there's a couple of joint roles in there too, uh, which Air, which Air Force can contribute towards. And then Tier Delta is your. There's only one of them, and that's Warrant Officer of the Air Force. So, who is currently Fee Grasby, uh, a sage appointment and, and a wonderful senior enlisted leader for our organisation. And who does he liaise? Uh, she, no, oh, so, she. Who does yep, she liaise no, with? So Fee works directly for the Chief of Air Force. Right. So, in a similar in a similar vein, in regards to my relationship with the Air Commander of Australia, uh, the Fee's relationship is uh, direct to the Chief of Air Force. So. Uh, as the most senior enlisted leader we have. Does that make it's almost like an aide de camp? Uh, no, 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 not at all. Okay. No. So aide de camp more so uh, uh, a junior officer learning the ropes in a uh, strategic or operational headquarters and supporting the chief uh, directly in regards to uh, uh, administrative uh, and staff type uh, uh, duties and responsibilities. Uh, Warrant Officer of the Air Force is the uh, senior enlisted advocate for our organisation. So. A pretty uh, her, important role. Yeah, her, oh, absolutely. Her remit uh, is across the whole of Air Force. Mine, in my position, is for Air Command and uh, uh, and, and and Air Command units, but uh, fees is the uh, remit of the whole Top organization. Top oh, Absolutely. Well, next year is your – sorry, not next year. It may be next year. In 20 – Peter, edit that out. In 2022, yeah. uh, you're hoping to be Warrant Officer Joint Operations. Is, mm. is that – Yes. Like, that's Absolutely. the next step? Absolutely. So I was fortunate enough uh, to be selected by General Bilton to be uh, the next Warrant Officer uh, Joint Operation. So I moved from uh, Glenbrook down to uh, Bungendore. Uh, it's my first posting the headquarters jock, uh, even though I've, I've been in the Joint Operations uh, world before with uh, my deployments. 
it's uh, my first posting to Joint Operations Command. So for me, it's uh, um, I come, I go there with an unbiased uh, view of uh, Joint Operations. <laughs> uh, I may be slightly biased in some ways, but uh, no, the opportunity to work for a three-star general mm. and yep. a man of the standing of General Buildings is is a and for being Air Force Warrant Officer doing that too is is uh, is humbling. Isn't it great that your original wish to be just want just want to be a tech yeah. that didn't happen and you, yeah. <laughs> where you are now? I have two two final questions, Absolutely. Ken. Two final questions. Absolutely. What would you if you had to pick three things? What would th- those three things be of your joys as being part of the Royal Australian Air Force? Uh, okay, so my first would be um, the people and the people that you work alongside, uh, colleagues and friends I've met and worked with over the years. Uh, essentially, Air Force is my life. And all my friends, uh, I met my wife through Air Force. I mean, she was a civilian in Wagga Wagga when I when I first met her, and so I would never have met her and had uh, three wonderful children um, if I if it wasn't for Air Force. Uh, my closest friends are all Air Force, um, just and the people that I've met throughout this organisation and the networks that I've, I've I've built up over close to 27 years is is all because of Air Force, and so. Nothing, um, and I say it to the junior ranks all the time, um, this, Air Force, this organisation owes me nothing and I owe it everything uh, in relation to my life. So mm. um, that, that would be not my number one. Uh, my second would be um, uh, the places Air Force has taken me, uh, you know, from, uh, from the Middle East to the United States to, uh, you know, um, uh, Djibouti, um, you know, on, the, on a... On a ship in the middle of the Arabian Gulf, HMOS Newcastle. Um, I mean, gee, and, and I mean, the list goes on. Yeah, I don't think yeah. uh, there's been so many places I've been in the world, uh, courtesy of the Royal Australian Air Force, yep. and so uh, that's something which is uh, obviously uh, for me quite humbling and a privilege. And thirdly, uh, last, oh, I think it's uh, I'll go back to the banter. I, I, I love it. Uh, it's the 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 banter between the, uh, the the ranks and the services. So I've got some, so my best friends are in. Uh, are in the army and the navy also, and so just that banter that really, when we get together and we can, there's just this feeling that you know. I've, and I've got civilian friends, and and they're, and they're and they're valuable parts of my life, but it's just a different relationship when I meet uh, with my uh, fellow service. Understand, and, understand. You know, you know, there's just that uh, you know you've been through certain things together, experiences, jobs, uh, postings, deployments. And there's something which just creates that bond, and that, that sorry, that bond, uh, which I which I can never repay Air Force for. So, so in that banter, mm-hmm. how would a wing commander handle a flight lieutenant to go at him? Uh, <laughs> look, you'd have to be for the flight lieutenant. My advice would be to be very careful yeah. uh, <laughs> about doing that. But it's all about uh, having just a little bit of understanding and social mastery that. Um, you know, there, there's a there's a line you don't cross, obviously. But um, I mean, creating an, an atmosphere within a headquarters or a, a squadron where you know you can feel you can talk to the commanding officer about nearly anything. Sure. Uh, with with obviously due respect, that that's powerful. Um, and yet, having a healthy respect for the warrant officer and the and the uh, and the senior enlisted is also there. Um, but then understanding that uh, we're all human after all, right? Yeah, sure. And sure. Relationships matter. Last question. The word family. Yeah. How important, you said three children, a wife, how important is family within your career in the RWF? And I extend the word family beyond wife and three children to yeah. the fellow men and women you work with. Yeah, it's, it's pivotal, Gareth. Um, I can't think of anything more important. Um, 
I have to admit, um, uh, I've been doing my job now for a long time, and you, you don't, you just always think that your your family's going to be there. Um, there's, excuse me, there's been some some tough times and uh, that we've been through, and some postings where I've been unaccompanied and I haven't been able to see my children grow, and I've missed mm. certain and significant parts of their life. Uh, if it wasn't for my wife Melissa uh, being able to uh, keep the home fires burning and and raising my children, uh, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. And I think I speak for uh, all all serving men mm. and women in the uh, in the organisation when I say that you know if it wasn't for our families, uh, we we just we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Yeah. Uh, my last quote on that will be: the air commander uh, has a has a has an awesome saying. He says, "Families, uh, defence families." Um, they truly understand what it means to serve because they do serve in relation to supporting uh, the warfighters. So, yeah, um, it certainly is. Um, um, I'm, I'm just forever thankful that I have an understanding wife and family. Yeah, well, Melissa, I hope you're listening because he, he really does mean that. Uh, you, you mentioned when I asked you about your OAM, you said the Air Force owes you nothing but you owe everything to the Air Force. Could I contradict that? and say, no, the Air Force owes so much to men and women just like you who've made a significant contribution to an amazing history in 100 plus or so years. It is an amazing service. It does stand Australia well in the hallmarks of history across the world. So yes, the Air Force owes you a lot and thank you very much for the privilege of being able to chat to you today, Ken. Good on you. Thanks, Gareth. It's been an absolute privilege being here today. And uh, and hopefully uh, we have more Air Force people uh, step up and, and, and tell their story and, and be able to uh, uh, share a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful relationship that the RAF Association uh, has with serving members of Australia. So thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.